The Stages podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of the lands on which our artists and audiences meet. We pay our respect to past, present and emerging elders. We acknowledge the important role that art has played on these lands for thousands of years and feel privileged to work alongside artists continuing the creative practice of one of the oldest surviving cultures in the world. With episodes now passing the 300 mark in the Stages archive, it's time that we revisit conversations featured in our previous seasons. Stages spotlight such episodes in case you miss them the first time around, or so that you can simply savour a second listen. Either way, you'll be accessing precious oral histories from the people who were there on and around our stages. There are very few Australian directors who can lay claim to have conquered the stages of the world. This accolade belongs to the trailblazing Gail Edwards, one of our most acclaimed directors. In a career spanning more than 30 years, she has rewarded audiences with visceral and vibrant storytelling. As a preeminent storyteller, she is the first Australian to have opened large commercial musicals on Broadway and in the West End. She is the only Australian to have directed at the Royal Shakespeare Company in Stratford-on-Avon, and the only woman to have directed on their main stage. Gail Edwards is frank, astute, intuitive and possesses an infectious sense of humour. It is evident that she adores her role as a storyteller and is most reverential in her respect for the texts to which she gives life. The incredible joy she experiences in being in a rehearsal room is palpable. Gail was the guest on stages in 2019 in a compelling two-part conversation. We shine the spotlight today on our first episode with Gail. Hers is a fascinating story, and it was a privilege to spend time with this astute theatre maker as she shared insight, assessment and anecdotes of a celebrated and trailblazing career. I turn it on and people shut up. Hello, Peter. Um, oh, it's lovely to meet you and to be in your wonderful home. It's, Thank you're, you. You're Pete. surrounded by art, and yes. a lot of it you've created yourself. Yes, people joke that I live in an art gallery because my wall—I have no wall space left. And yes, all the stained glass windows I've done myself. I decoupage furniture, I sculpt, I paint a little, but. These are also things from all over the world. A lot of the things around us now are also paintings or objects that I've collected from a long career, as you know, outside of Australia. So it's a very personal house and a very colourful and bohemian house. And um, probably not everyone's cup of tea, but I it's my sanctuary and I love it. And uh, I came back from England in the year 2000 and I bought this house because I'd been so itinerant all my life really mm. I think I've worked I think I've done more international productions than any Australian director just if you just do a count yeah. of them and so that meant I was always in different countries and I was often in marvelous beautiful accommodation. I was in penthouses, but it wasn't home. And the first thing I did when I came home was I bought this house, which is an old Federation house, 
with fireplaces and floorboards and big sofas because I really craved home. That's important, isn't it, home? How do you define home? Uh, well, you see, I, I've always been alone. My career hasn't been about partnership. I haven't been one of those lucky people who had a husband that wanted to travel the world with me and bring up the kids or whatever. I've, I've done it all pretty much solo. And um, I did buy an apartment, which I still have in London, in um, Clerkenwell, right close to the West End, because I used to walk into Shaftesbury Avenue and direct, you know, I'd direct and I would literally walk home. Mm. And that's a very um, modern, converted industrial building, very chic, you know, the the, the um, floor-to-ceiling windows with the panes of glass and the, the bolts in the, the, in the iron girders up the middle. It's very um, contemporary. But I can't say it was ever really home. I feel home here. I feel home in Glebe, in Sydney, in this old Federation house. Your career as a director consists of, of making uh, all the time. You're constructing productions from blueprints of plays. A lot of the artwork I said, you, you know, you've created yourself, there's sculptures and decoupage and all that sort of thing. Is it, is it important for the artist to be creative all the time? That's obviously the way that you have your downtime when you're, you're making your art. Well, I didn't used to have a lot of downtime. Right. I mean, in my younger years, I was—I mean, I was doing five or six shows a year, and they would vary from huge musicals to operas to new works to Shakespeare, and they were often in different countries. So I would finish something in one country, get on a plane and go to another country, and start the next one. So I lived a very. Um, uh, <sighs> Insane, actually, is the word I'm looking for, but but a very busy, whirlwind, international career. And so I, I never really had a home, and um, I craved that stability, and I was always by myself. So, and I'd, so I'd make friends wherever I'd go, and the company that I was working with at the time would become my family. So there'd be an American family, an English family, a German family, an Australian family, each play became a substitute for life, really. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, intense, passionate uh, pursuit of a play meant that we were all working together dynamically, all of us, to, to bring a writer's work to life. And that was so satisfying for me that I never noticed that real life was passing me by as the years went on and it was only when I got older and of course I chose to live in the most ageist country Australia because we're always looking for the next young thing you know and uh, I realized that suddenly I wasn't doing six productions a year and I had to be creative mm. So the sculpture and the painting and the art was the outlet for that inclination. And I'm pretty much self-taught. Um, you know, I've done some classes here and there. I don't sell anything. I do it for love and for therapy, really. Um, but it gives me great pleasure. 
there seems to be a, a plethora of directors around at the moment. Everyone seems to be a director. What, in your opinion, makes for a good director? Is it that they have to have had a training? Is it their life experience? Do they've been an actor, an apprenticeship with a master? They're a good storyteller? Uh, I think there are many ways to become a director. Uh, many paths. I'll talk about my path because I did the master apprentice path. I worked with the great Trevor Nunn mm. on Les Miserables and I was his apprentice when I was at the age of about 35. However, I'd already been associate director of the South Australian Theatre Company with John Gayden. I'd already directed King Lear with Geoffrey Rush playing the fool and uh, the great John Howard playing Edmund and, you know, I, and John Gayden playing Lear. I mean, I was a very experienced director, but off I went to become the servant to the master. And I went to Broadway and worked with Trevor and subsequently worked with him back here. And because Trevor had run the Royal Shakespeare Company for 28 years and was, you know, one of the great directors of Shakespeare in the Western world, we had a lot in common apart from musicals and Les Mis, which we were working on. So we became friends. And I would say he's been my great mentor. He's certainly the reason why I went to London and had a career for 20 years there. Um, he encouraged me to go to London. Uh, he set up a job there for me in London. And, um, you know, and I've always looked up to him because he was one of the directors that crossed genre. So the, the idea that he could be doing an opera at Blindbourne, a Shakespeare at the Royal Shakespeare Company, and Cats, the musical, at the same time, and that that was okay, um, that's what I emulated and wanted to be. And so I guess I've turned out to be one of those rare things, um, the director that does across the board very different genres of theatre and has, you know, achieved a pretty good standard across the board. So I'm quite proud of that. You've recently finished directing two operas. Yes, I have. Vastly different operas, I might say. Uh, the Enchanted Pig, which was written in 2006, I believe. Mm -hmm. By Jonathan Dove, the latest big hit opera in London. And Papaya, which is probably one, of the, one of the first examples of, of the genre. Mid-1600s, yes. Yeah. <laughs> do you, is, do those productions, because you're doing it at the same time? Or at the same soon, time, yeah, yep. Do they require a different approach in directing them? Uh, look, I think, I think great directors are great storytellers. And uh, I'm now harking back to your previous question. What makes a great director is, is someone who can tell a story. It's your job to understand the writer's intentions, whether the writer is a composer, uh, a lyricist, or Shakespeare. What, what were they writing about and why? You've got to understand that. And then you've got to understand why what they were writing about is going to be relevant to the society you live in right now. Not three years ago, right now. Otherwise, you have what you call museum theatre, theatre in aspic. Theatre is constant, you, you, you are constantly changing as an artist. So if you direct King Lear today, it's not the same as directing King Lear 10 years ago. 
And if you direct it in London, it's not the same as directing it in New York. So what, I'm, what fascinates me about art in general and the theatre specifically is that it is a plastic medium. It is a living, changing, organic medium. And that's what I always set out to try to do. What is the story? Why is it relevant today? What is going to hold an audience riveted, provoked, entertained, challenged? What is it about this story that will impel them to come and stay in their seats? So with Monteverdi writing in you know, the 1600s, or Jonathan Dove writing only a few years ago in London, what were they trying to say and what do I have to say through them honouring their work? Not doing a Gail Edwards version of their work that may be disrespectful. I, I actually don't approve of the, um, the extreme concept approach. But you also have to have a point of view as a director. You can't just do it. It's not just moving people around like dominoes. You know, you sit there, you stand there, you wear a period costume. The question is, what does it mean? What's it going to mean to these people who are going to share this tribal experience in this room with these performers? So it's quite an in-depth, highly skilled uh, profession. And I think it is one of the most misunderstood professions because you're invisible and you should be invisible. You know, you're sitting in the back row in the dark on the opening night and the actors are up there in the spotlight. And aren't they marvellous? And haven't they done a great job? And isn't he terrific? <laughs> and you think, it took me six weeks to get that performance out of him. Or it, this, con this concept for this piece has enlivened it and brought it to life right now and if it hadn't been enlivened, the audience probably wouldn't like it. So, but those things, audiences don't realise those things. They sort of think, I think many audience members don't really know what directors do at all. They sort of think they sit with the actors and have a, have a, um, a few coffees and somehow out of a magic box, something called a play emerges. Directing is a set of very specific practical skills literate skills, dimensional spatial skills, and people skills, and I'm going to add psychiatric skills. Because every actor in the room is different, and you have to find the language to release something in that actor. And that same sentence, that same language, will not release it in that other actor on the other side of the room because they're different personalities, they have different um, belief systems, different blockages, different inclinations, different passions. So you are constant. If you've got a room full of 20 actors doing a Shakespeare play, you are dealing with 20 personalities that are unique and brilliant because actors are brilliant people. They are the shaman of our world. I mean, they, they're the high wire flyers. They're the trapeze artists who are prepared to get up in front of you without a net and fly through the air and hope they grip the other trapeze artist's hands in that split second. I mean, live theatre comes from circus. 
it's living, it's dangerous. Someone might trip over. You know, you can't edit out the bad bits. So I have such respect for actors because of that, especially in the theatre, because I, I, I don't... I, I mean, I remember John Gaydon saying to me once, and, you know, John has had a long and illustrious career in this country as a theatre actor. And I remember John saying to me, and he must have been near 60 at the time, saying, Gail, I never, ever stand in the wings before I go on and not want to go to the toilet and not want to go home. (laughs) (laughs) He said, I get so nervous. And he said, but the minute I step out there, I take the step and then I'm all right. I'm completely at home. I know what I'm doing. I'm on the stage. I've rehearsed it. I've, but in those it's seconds, that anticipation. Yes, in those happen. seconds, I am nervous, and I wish to God I could go home. Mm-hmm. And you think that's someone who's done this his whole life mm-hmm. at the topmost level, and he still feels that. Mm-hmm. So it's that thrill of the unknown and the unexpected and the spontaneous, which is what makes live theatre so thrilling. And it is also what makes it so challenging to do. A lot of folk also wouldn't uh, appreciate that directors, it's very labour intensive. I mean, you described to me earlier in the week when we were in a phone call that you've been on your feet up to 14 hours a day, six days a week. I have. I have because I was doing two operas yeah. at the same time. They had two different companies and I just had to... Uh, it was a company, it was Gertrude Opera and I was supporting them and offering them my my help and I was doing a lot of jobs as well as directing and uh, yeah I was I was working 14 hours a day six days a week and I was exhausted <laughs> it's taken me a week to get over it um, but I loved it mm. and you see when you love something and you're in pursuit of something because there's a lot of de- detective work involved can I make that scene exciting can I what's really going on here when you're passionate, you don't get tired, you see. You don't know yes. you're tired. Yeah, yeah. And you just work and work and work. And I think I've probably done that for about 40 years. Because I used to do, you know, six shows a year in different countries and fly between countries. I'm talking about in my, in my youth. Mm-hmm. But for about 30 years, that's the life I lived. And it, it, takes, it takes a toll because... You don't realise you are tired, but you are. Mm. And it's only when you stop that you need to suddenly go to bed for two days. Mm. Um, but the, the, the process of directing, being in, a, being in a rehearsal room with a door shut, with a group of intelligent actors, all in pursuit of the same thing, bring, bringing a, a piece of writing to life for an audience, has always been the happiest thing in my life. I've never been so good at the politics of the theatre. I've never been so good at the spin. I've never been so good at... Well, don't don't go to dinner parties. Um, I've never been good at any of that stuff. But being in the rehearsal room with the actors and the script or the, the score or whatever, that to me is pure heaven. And it is when I feel and have felt in my life most whole. Are you good at handing the production over to the company on opening night and leaving it with them? 
Yes, I'm often on the big shows, if you're at the Australian Opera, for example, you have a maintenance director or a resident mm. director who will go on and they're charged with the responsibility Caretaker. of looking after it. Certainly on Les Mis, that's the case. And Les Mis, you have someone whose job it is to maintain the show and the integrity of the show. Um, at the smaller companies, they don't have that person who stays. Um, I leave on opening night and almost every time I go through a process of grief because the actors go on the next night and the crew and the lighting, they all turn up the next night and do it again and the next night and the next night until by the first weekend it's all become humdrum and they know exactly how to do it and they can go out there and soar to the sun, you know, <laughs> because they definitely don't need you anymore, the director. And directors tend to leave after the opening night and if you're going to another country, you're actually getting on a flight and leaving behind a family that has forged over, you know, a couple of months usually. And it's hard to leave. And I have to say this week, this is a perfect example of it. I've thought about those two operas playing in the Yarra Valley every single day. Mm. I wonder how they're going, I wonder how they are, and I miss those artists that I worked with. And that happens, it's, it's a process of um, family and losing family, family, losing family, continually. And I think emotionally that's very difficult and very wearing over, ye over decades because your relationships if you, are so often transient. And and you might meet those people again in 10 years' time and you will fall into each other's arms because you are bonded by that previous experience. But you don't see each other. Where did you grow up? I grew up... I was born in Adelaide and I, uh, I was an only child and uh, my father was sadly a very, very, very advanced alcoholic and a violent uh, domestic abuser of both my mother and myself. And uh, he worked at General Motors Holden, and he the whistle used to go off at four o'clock, and if my mother was pegging close to the clothesline, she, her hand would stop on the peg. And we would both stop because we knew the pub shut at six o'clock. And he would be going directly from the factory to the pub. And at six o'clock, he could come home in various states of inebriation. If we were really lucky, he was so drunk he couldn't stand up. And he would be dropped in the gutter by somebody in a car. If he was not really that badly drunk, he could be violent and beat my mother up. Um... Sometimes he could be jolly and funny, uh, but he didn't sleep in the house with us because he would, I mean, he would just, his behaviour was completely unpredictable and we lived in fear of him. And so he converted a shed down the bottom of the garden and it became, like, was like a sleep out and he had tools in there and a single bed and that's where he would crash at night because he couldn't come into our little tiny little flat at the side of my grandmother's house 
I mean, because he was he he stank of alcohol and he was often stumbling. I mean, my mother had to often put his arm around her shoulder and help him stagger down the garden where he would fall on the bed. So up to the age of nine, I lived in a very um, poor, fearful, violent um, environment. And I was very bad at school. I was 34th in the class of 35. I was always truant from school. My mother was a cleaning lady and I used to cling to my mother who was a wonderful woman. And I would go cleaning, I would go with her when she cleaned rich people's houses. And just because I didn't have the confidence to go to school. I mean, I was a beaten up child and, and I was also a molested child. So that wasn't good. But what's interesting is the year after my mother died, when I was nine, I went from 34th in the class to top of the class and ducks of the school in one term. And I've got the report cards to prove it. And I've often taken these report cards to psychiatrists and people and said, how could a kid be 34th in the class and then be top of the class and then be top of the class for every year of high school and ducks of the school for every year and then go to university and get distinctions in everything. How could that conversion happen? And the explanation was that if a child suffers extreme trauma, uh, especially in an event, they sort of melt down. This is a psychiatrist explaining it to me. And they can rewire themselves in that instant. Happens in war zones with children. And you can rewire yourself for survival as a drug addict or a serial killer or anything. And I obviously rewired myself as a high achiever. You must have been experiencing tremendous grief, though, at the loss of your mother as well. Do you think that forced you into some sort of focus on the studies to sort of... Um, I suppose so. I mean, sadly, the circumstances of my mother's death are that my father was particularly inebriated one night and frequently hit her, but one night he hit her with a splicing iron um, and smashed her skull in. And I used to sleep in the room with my mother... This incident happened down the back of the garden. She'd obviously gone down to speak to him. And um, drunkenly, he fell back into bed and left her there. I think you bleed a lot from a head wound. And he unfortunately heard what he called the bleating of a sheep or the bleating of a lamb outside which woke him up. And when he went outside, my mother was still in the place where she had dropped. Well, of course, he ran around to my grandmother's part, my mother's mother's grand house. She had a telephone. We didn't. She had a car. We didn't. And obviously banged on the door and said, you know, that he'd hit my mother over the head and she was very in a very bad state. They called an ambulance. But the mistake my grandmother made was she went to the hospital with my mother, who died on arrival. 
But because my father was drunk and raving, she put my father around in the flat where I lived with my mother to keep him away from police and ambulance men. So little Gail at nine wakes up in her single bed with the crouched figure of her father sitting on the bottom of the bed and he was never allowed into the flat because of his behaviour. But he's bent over, weeping, crying, and his words are, I've just killed your mother, I've just killed your mother, I didn't mean to, I hit her, but I hit her with a splicing iron. And he was sobbing, and he was rancid with the smell of alcohol. So that wasn't a good thing for a child to wake up to. No. And then I made my father a cup of coffee and I waited in my pink chenille dressing gown. We were very poor. I sat on my mother's bed, rocking backwards and forwards in a state of some kind of shock. And a young policeman came to the door. It was probably three o'clock in the morning. And the policeman said, Mr. Edwards. And my father said, yes, presuming that he was probably going to be arrested, I imagine, Mm. in retrospect. And I didn't think that at the time. I just thought it's a policeman. And he said, I'm very sorry to tell you, Mrs. Edwards died on arrival. She's passed away and I sat there at the window waiting for the next line which was here are the handcuffs (laughs) and the young policeman put on his hat and said I'm very sorry Mr Edwards and walked away and I wanted to open the window and call out come back Mr Policeman because he did it He did it. He killed my mother. He's told me. It wasn't deliberate or premeditated, but but he did it. And, of course, I waited in the dark for a very long time. My grandmother had come back from the hospital with her other daughter and her daughter's husband and the boarder from upstairs, and my father was there. And I was taken around to this very bright kitchen, and my grandmother was screaming and weeping because her daughter had died and she had told them at the hospital that her daughter had been on her way to the outside toilet and had fallen and smashed her head on the concrete because she didn't want the scandal and she had enlisted her daughter Dawn and her and her husband and my father in the lie that they all perpetuated. Not knowing that little Gail had woken up to him sobbing, saying, I've just killed your mother. I've just killed your mother. I hit her with a splicing iron on the concrete outside. So when I went into the kitchen, my grandmother fell on her knees and threw her arms around me. This is my mother's mother sobbing and wailing and she held me so tight I could barely breathe and she said poor little Gail poor little Gail whatever is going to happen to poor little Gail not the words a child needs to hear in that moment a child needs to hear 
mummy's gone but everything's all right we're all here to look after you we love you everything will be all right but poor little gail whatever will happen to poor little gail meaning something terrible will happen to poor little gail so it wasn't a good thing to say and my my auntie later told me that i was like a little marble statue with big brown saucer eyes and that i did not move i did not cry i showed no emotion I just stood there while my grandmother wailed and I looked completely shocked, which I would have been. I mean, imagine mm. such a thing to happen in the middle of the night. It's dark outside. A child wakes up and her mother is not in the bed next to her and her father's weeping on the... I mean, that's not normal. And that was a terrible trauma. And my the next day, my grandmother took my father, she was a little woman like me, and she got my father up against the wall and she smashed him against the wall until a trickle of blood ran down the wall from the back of his head and she said, you get out of here, you leave her alone, meaning me, you don't touch her, you leave her here, you get out of our lives and you never come back or I will tell what you did. And my father disappeared, and I never saw him again. Ever? He never said goodbye. I have no idea what happened to him. I've tried to trace him through Ancestry.com to find a death, you know, because, of course, he'd be dead by now. Yeah. Um, I've never known what happened to my father. And... Um, <laughs> Just by, just by way of a, a sidestep, I actually contacted um, Whose Life Is It Anyway? You know that show? Yep, yep. Because I have no idea where my father came from, if he had parents, if he had brothers and sisters. He was just a man. I mean, I don't know anything about him. And I often thought, wouldn't it be wonderful to go on that program and, and have someone research yes. where, what happened? Who was this man? Where did he come from? I mean, Edwards is a Welsh name. Where, where did these people come from? Um, but, of course, they weren't interested in doing it about about me because I presume I'm not a sort of household name. I mean, you could even have step-siblings or something. I could have step-siblings. Yeah. So, so it, was a, it was a night of extreme trauma. And after that night, I became a very, very high achiever. And I think it was in answer to poor little Gail, poor little Gail, whatever is going to happen to poor little Gail. And something happened in that night of trauma that I went from 34th in the class to ducks of the school. Did the police not investigate? 1964. My grandmother, the mother of the deceased, and her sister filled out the forms, cried, were distraught, well, what's to investigate? So the police didn't have any records of domestic violence from that household? No. Nope. So nothing was ever... Nothing was ever... Complained. Com so there you go. Oh. So I've... That night has informed, I would suggest, most of my life. And I think that... Uh, I mean, I've been, I've been gone to therapists and psychiatrists and all sorts of people... There is no doubt in my mind 
that my attraction for the theatre came from the fact that it wasn't real life because real life hadn't turned out to be all that good. Whereas in the theatre there were great stories of kings and queens and many of them had happy endings and they were examinations of the human spirit, the human condition. And I think the theatre, and I, and I love literature, you know, I'm a, I, I have a, I'm a doctor of literature. I'm a doctor of letters. I love literature at university. I loved reading stories. I love sto- I love trying to understand what motivates people. And I'm sure that it came from that early those early beginnings. Because I didn't seem to have the normal things that the other kids at school had, like picnics on Sundays or mum and dad having a birthday party for you or Christmas spent with your family or I didn't have those things ever and then there was this kind of covered up mystery that that my grandmother and I spoke at length about I mean we spoke about it for years but I think the theatre became the place to investigate the human condition and to try to understand what the human condition was because I didn't have any other way to reach it now that's a that's an older person talking. That's mm. somebody you know that's over sixty, over sixty, who's reflecting on something. But I can see how every show was special to me, and every show was not just another show. Whether it was a little show in a tin shack or it was a big show on the West End, they've all been important stories for me to tell, and I've found myself in them. Um, and I think that, that, that the family that gets constructed when you do a play, the closeness, the bonds that you make with people, because you're, you know, for an actor to stand on a floor and be exposing their intimate emotions with you and your guidance and possibly your provocation to get it out of them, um, that's a very intimate relationship, you know, so... So I think I found family in the theatre and purpose and meaning and understanding. And I think that's why I probably went into it. Although I do have to tell you that after this horrendous event, I went to live with my maternal grandmother in the big part of the house. She lived like Miss Havisham in a big house with burgundy carpets and chandeliers all by herself. So where was your grandfather? Oh, he'd gone years ago. I never knew my grandfather. And she lived alone, like Miss Havisham, you know. And it was all faded. It it wasn't glamorous. It was this big house, which was faded, but beautiful, you know. Needed an upkeep, needed someone to buy it and do it up. But we lived in this kind of faded grandeur that I grew up in from 9 to 7, 18 when she died. So I, I then went from one weird situation to another weird situation where my grandmother and I lived together in this huge, amazing house that had always been there, but we'd lived in the servants' quarters out the back. And a place of fantasy with attics and all of my grandmother's old clothes and 
I mean, the most wonderful haunted house you could ever want to, to inspire a child's imagination. And she worked at Hoyt Cinemas, had worked all her life as an usherette, but by the time I went to live with her, she was older, so she was the confectionery lady. So she used to go to, we used to go on the bus to the Hoyt's Odeon every night while she worked. And she was too poor to have a babysitter, so I used to go and watch the movie while she worked. So I saw Elizabeth Taylor and Cleopatra 36 times. Wow. <laughs> I saw Zorba the Greek 40 times. I saw, you know, you know, all those movies of that time. And I would sit there in the, in the dark, and the usherettes were beautiful and would look after me, and I never rolled Jaffers down the aisles or behaved badly. I sat there riveted because this big screen was my life. And those larger-than-life characters with these amazing lives, that's, they were my friends. They offered some sort of escape. I yeah, well, we had, I had no family other than yeah. my grandmother and I had no, friend, no friends who ever came to the house. And I'm this odd kid at school that's very bright, you know, Brain box, I think I was called. So the cinema was everything. It was, I mean, Cinema Paradiso is my story. So from nine to 18, I spent every night of the week at the cinema and still came ducks of the school. I mean, how weird is that? So the cinema starts as your great teacher, I guess. The cinema. And when I knew the movie backwards, because I'd seen it five times, I started to look around the edge of the frame. So I would see things in the movie that no one else would see because, of course, they're watching the main story. And so I learned the patience of observation. I learned to sit and look for the details. And I swear to God, that's where I learned to be a theatre director. I mean, it, I could have been a film director, I suppose, but I, I didn't know how to be a director of anything. I didn't know... I mean, I was a working-class kid from Port Adelaide, so I didn't know how to do anything. All I knew was that I was bright and I went to university and I took up drama at Flinders University. Were you involved in any uh, drama experiences at school? The, the, yes, the school I was. Production? I was or... in all the school productions yeah. and I was the arts captain. But I went to a technical school because uh, my, my grandmother didn't believe in learning and thought that girls didn't need an education and that I should become an air hostess because then I'd marry a businessman in business class or a pilot. I can see the smirk on your face. You're imagining <laughs> me. You are imagining me as an air hostess. I wouldn't have been a good air hostess. I'm here to tell you I would not. But anyway, she wanted me to be an air hostess and she tried to stop me from going to university. And, you know, every term I would come home with these reports saying, from high school saying that I was so clever and she would be she would have those Becks do you Powders. remember Becks came in a powder and yep. you opened the little white paper yes. and you put the Becks powder in your, in your mouth and yeah. you had a cup of tea with it and she would look to the right and sign the report card without reading it but the report card would say Gail is an outstanding prodigy who's you know I mean who's got 100% for every... But my grandmother didn't care because she thought it was a waste of time. So I had to fight to go to university. 
Um, but some instinct told me that I, I need, I mean, I needed to get out. Was there a teacher at school looking out for you or? There were, there were teachers, who, I mean, there were terrific teachers who said to yeah. me, you've, you've just got the marks in matric, matriculation, which was year 12. Uh, you know, you can go to law school or you can go to medicine. You have the marks, you know, you can do anything you want. <laughs> in fact, I came top of the state in geography in South Australia and I was on the honours list. And I received the John Lewis Geographer's Medal and I had to go to the Royal Geographic Society at Adelaide University and stand in front of a sea of royal geographers. And I received the John Lewis Medal and they said to me, and, and what are you going to go on and do at university? And I said, I'm going to Flinders University to study drama and be an actress. And there were these guff, I mean, chortling coughs of disapproval from the white-haired gentleman of the Royal Geographic Association that somebody who had come top of the state in geography would dare to think she should go and be an actress. Um, but that's what I did. I went to Flinders. So uh, being an actor was, was the first sort of goal, not Well, not who direction. knew what a director did? Yeah, I suppose exactly. You know, I, I wanted to be an actress, but I knew that in that little box, I had done school plays and I'd loved them, I remember being bussed to a theatre to see Derek Jacobi play Hamlet in Adelaide in Her Majesty's Theatre and Timothy West play King Lear. I must have been in year, you know, fourth year. And were these actors you would go on to meet and work with at some point? Uh, yes. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, so I've met both Timothy West and Derek Jacobi. And yes, and, you know, I mean, they were... I didn't even know who they were. Yeah. I was just a schoolgirl. Yes, you would. And, <laughs> but while all the other school kids were, you know, chewing gum and sticking it on the back of chairs and yahooing, I was gripped. I understood that up there behind that proscenium arch was a world. And it was a magical world and it was a meaningful world. And it was a world with its own rules. And it seemed to be a much better world than the real one. So very early on, all I wanted to do was, was this thing called theatre that my family had no connection to whatsoever. I mean, couldn't even imagine why I would, where that would come from in me. No history of it, no books in the house, no music. We had no music, no books. We were very poor, you know. I mean, I had a cousin who lived next door, a boy who subsequently went on to become Professor Neil Pillar, very bright, a few years older than me, and he has run Flinders University Medical Centre and he's now retired. But he was like a, a shining light in my childhood. And I remember him saying to me, you're very bright. You have to go to university. And I'd say, but my grandmother won't let me. You know, she says I have to pay board as of next week. I've got to pay $35 a week board. And I, you know, da, da, da. He said, you've got to go to university. Here's a Commonwealth scholarship form. Fill this out. You've got to go. And he was such an encouraging um, force in my life. And we're still, to this day, we're second cousins. Mm. Uh, we didn't see each other for 30 years because I travelled the world and so did he. But in our dotage... We've become such good friends because he really did influence my life. 
without his help, I don't know how I would have got to university. She was determined I wasn't going. A girl did not need an education. Tell me about energy connection. <laughs> I got a job in a very fabulous school, a Don Dunstan showpiece called Morialta High School, run by what was called a super principal, whose name was Joe Laslett. Joe Laslett was one of the biggest forces in my life because I had a big drama room, I had building blocks, I had a lighting rig, and I was my own boss and I could put on, I, I taught all years drama, but I also got to put on the, um, the school musical every year. And he, many of the kids that I worked with were bad at everything except drama or were poor at other things, but outstanding at drama. And they, I, I, for, I decided to form a company called Energy Connection using the kids, if they wanted to, who had left school. And, I mean, Tony Poli was one of them. He was working in a vegetable st stall in Marden Shopping Centre. Mark Pegler was one of them. He was working in a salmon ship off the coast of Queensland. The late Laverne McDonald, great actress, was somewhere in a house with some other dropouts. There were these kids were outstandingly talented. So I gathered them together and I said, look, I mean, who was I? You know, where did this audacity come from? I said, I'm forming a theatre company and I think you should all be in it. And there's no money and we're going to put on a show for the Adelaide Festival. Fringe. And um, they all came on this Saturday afternoon. One of them was Jonathan Mill, who's subsequently been head of equity. Who's you know, they, these, these were an amazing group of, of young people. And I had the audacity to set myself up as the director of this company. And we did indeed perform in Adelaide until we were given by the government, Theatre 62, as our home. And we put on show after show after show, which we wrote and created ourselves. And for a little moment in Adelaide, we were quite a phenomenon. I mean, it was a youth theatre, but the work was very sophisticated. And um, they all went on to have wonderful careers in and around the theatre. Not necessarily all went on to be actors. But it was the, the, the determining time making me realise that probably I wasn't an actress. Probably I was a director. And I'd, I'd kind of just taken on this role. Um, and I went to London to study for a while and I took myself off for a year because I knew London was the centre of everything and I lived in an attic and under a, a garret. <laughs> and um, I sat up in the gods, you know, for $5 seats because I was only 19 or 20 at the time. And I, you know, I saw Barishnikov dance and I saw Yelbrunner's last performances of, of uh, The King and I, you know, doing 11 curtain calls and not smiling until the last one. And then people tearing up the seats because at last the king smiled. I mean, I saw amazing theatre and I was 20. Um, so, you know, I, somehow this weird road 
always had an unconscious direction to it. I, I, people have said, you know, she must be so ambitious to have done all the things she's done. I was never ambitious. I just loved it. Mm. I never planned anything. I never planned a path. I just loved what I did and I loved the theatre. And I don't, I mean, you can see why. (laughs) (laughs) So you returned to Australia with the firm ambition that this is what you're going to make as your full-time career. Yes, and and I auditioned for NIDA. For NIDA. Yes, and I auditioned for NIDA. And um, John Clark and Elizabeth had come and seen Energy Connection shows. While they're in Adelaide. Yeah. And so... I guess so some of those actors also would have been... They went on to NIDA. On to NIDA. Many of them training did, went on to NIDA. And um, John and Elizabeth had always been supportive. They'd kind of cottoned on to the fact that there was this girl in Adelaide who was doing special things with some company, weird things that they were writing themselves. And they came and they were so supportive. And I remember John Clark saying to me... I think you should come to NIDA. And I thought, why should I do that? I mean, I'm living in Adelaide and I've got a terrific little company here. You know, what's what's NIDA? And he said, because we can teach you how to really do it. And I thought, oh, that sounds very strange. And then he said, I think directors like you only come along once a decade. The last one I saw was Aubrey Mellor, and you're the next one. And Aubrey Mellor was, was like 10 years before me. And he said, and you're the second one, and I think you should come to NIDA. So I took myself off to the director's course at NIDA. And, um, Who was running the, the director's course? Nobody. Nobody? It was, it was Nobody. They were between... A, um, a newish course? or No, just... Whoever used to run it wasn't there. The late and great Robin Lovejoy, um, a name that will be forgotten by many people but was a famous director in his time, used to come and do tutorials with us. John himself did tutorials with us. Um, We had to do a lot of the acting course and we got to direct something at the end of the year. It really wasn't all that well organised. But being in the environment of NIDA was fantastic because you're in a, a place devoted to the theatre with a technical course, a design course, actors' courses, shows going on all the time. I mean, how happy was I? There I was in the place where every aspect of theatre was being taught by experts. And I would go and direct student productions with the voice teacher sitting next to me you know, Bill Pepper, Betty Williams, and I would listen to them saying things to the actors. And, of course, I was learning, even though I was the teacher. I, I felt like John Clark and Elizabeth gave me a laboratory to learn in. The great Nick Enright was the head of acting. He became my friend and my mentor. I watched him teach. I was I co-taught with him in rooms together. So I was absorbing like a sponge all the technical things that I really didn't have when I formed Energy Connection. What I had when I formed Energy Connection was passion, enthusiasm, belief, stories to tell. 
But what I learned at NIDA was skills and techniques, what it really was to direct. I learned from all the other staff. And John was a great, John Clark was a great mentor to me. And while I was at NIDA, the call went out that Trevor Nunn was directing Labour Miserabla in Australia. John Caird, his co-director, couldn't come. So they wanted somebody to assist the great Trevor Nunn on Les Mis. And he had put out a brief that he wanted somebody who could direct opera, musicals and Shakespeare. And of course that was me, because I'd done those things. There weren't many people who'd done them. And so I remember... Did you, you, went, you were on the teaching staff at NIDA also after you did the yes, directing course? Yes, yeah. I was. Yeah, I was on the teaching staff. I taught for a few years and I think perhaps I was teaching there when this happened. And I went to this interview with John Robertson and James Thane, who represented Cameron McIntosh. And they said, we're doing this show called Les Mis, which I'd never heard of. Here's the picture of the little girl, you know, the etching of yes, the little girl. Yes. Um, you better listen to this CD. We think you should do this, but we need you to get on a plane and go to Broadway next week, by the weekend. And I said, well, I'm a can't, I can't. I'm going to do the audition tour at NIDA to take in the yearly intake. I was teaching at NIDA at the time. And, and, I, and I jokingly say I'm the only person in the world to do a five-year NIDA course because it felt, even though I was teaching there, that I was learning every day. And so, you know, I said to John, I've been offered this job in New York doing Les Mis on Broadway with the great Trevor Nunn. And John Clark said, go, you must go. Go now, go. I said, but what about the tour around Australia? Who are you? He said, go. Now that's, that is a wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. And that following weekend I was on a plane I was staying in New York. I was rehearsing at the Michael Bennett Studios. I would walk down Broadway every day by myself and I'd turn up and the great Trevor Nunn was directing and I was sitting there with a score of Les Mis, which I couldn't read because I couldn't read music, and I would turn the pages of the score whenever the pianist turned the pages so I looked like I could read music. But luckily I had a photographic memory because I could see what he was doing. And I listened to the great Trevor Nunn and I thought, he's not all that different to me. I mean, he's a genius but and I'm not and he's experienced and I'm not. But the way he talks to actors about storytelling is the way I talk to actors about storytelling. And I felt an enormous affinity with him and we became great friends. Do you remember your first meeting? Well, I sat in the rehearsal room for a long time and he'd acknowledge me and just say hello. But when we opened in Washington one night, the revolve broke down and the whole show came to a standstill and it was freezing cold outside. And Trevor said, oh, I'm in the hotel next to you, I'll walk you home. And the two of us walked home in the snow and 
we started talking. Trevor said, oh, so you have directed King Lear, have you? I said, oh, yes, yes, yes. He said, how did you solve Act 2, Scene 3? How did you... He said, I've directed it four times and I still haven't got it right. And I thought, bloody hell, four times in Australia. You're lucky if you ever get to direct these things once in a career, you know, let alone four times. And I walked along next to God, Trevor Nunn, and the 10-minute walk took us about 40 minutes because we were walking very slowly. And we talked about King Lear and Shakespeare and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, I'm talking to God. And by the time we got to the, my hotel, he stood on the pavement in the snow and he said, well, I think you should be my, not my assistant director in Sydney. You should be my associate. Because you've directed King Lear, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> at a state theatre company. Because I'd gone to work with John Gable. And I think that you you should uh, you should be the associate director and work with me. What do you think? And of course, I just was blindsided. I mean, I was so excited. And I remember he gave me this big bear hug, completely non-sexual. This big bear hug, and I thought I'm being hugged by God. And I went up to my hotel room I was in a suite and I I went I'm going to do Les Mis with Trevor Nunn in Australia and I'm going to be his associate director and you're not going to believe this but I jumped onto the sofa onto the couch onto the single chair onto the sofa onto the bed like a five-year-old going my god I can't believe it and then of course Trevor came to Australia and we did it together you talk about King Lear and John Gade, and of course you had periods working as an associate director at South Australian Theatre Company and I Melbourne Theatre Company. I did. I, I, I've somehow messed up the chronology of things because um, I did go to South Australia and um, I did, uh, thanks to John Gaden, who was another big influence on my life, um, John had taken over the Adelaide South Australian Theatre Company and I guess it was politically interesting to have an Adelaide associate director. And possibly it may even have been affirmative action to have a female. I don't know. I didn't think about those things in those days. All I thought about was I've got an appointment to go and have lunch with John Gaden. <sighs> Yet another god. Um, and I was a fan of John's work. I'd seen him do things around the country. And he was so lovely to meet. John is one of nature's great gentlemen. And he asked me to be the associate director of the South Australian Theatre Company. And I was. And uh, we worked together for several years. I did King Lear with him playing the leading role. I did uh, The Winter's Tale with him playing the leading role. I did many, many plays on the, in the Playhouse in, in Adelaide. And also during that time, I did Sweeney Todd at the the first Sweeney Todd, starring Lyndon Terracini, at Her Majesty's Theatre for the South Australian Opera Company. And I just I had I've often called my years in Adelaide with John Gaden 
the golden years because I did everything from Alan Ankborn to Shakespeare to brand new plays to shorts to one-act plays, um, The Glass Menagerie. You know, I, I, I did everything. And John, in South Australia in those days, everything was under the roof of the Festival Centre. And so the workshops, the wardrobe, they were all in one area. So you'd arrive in the morning and say hello to the workshop, hello to the, to the builders, the carpenters, the electricians, hello, then you'd go into the offices, hello. So there was, what is being lost in the theatre was this sense that it was one big community called the South Australian Opera Company, all under the same roof, all ten steps away from each other. And big rehearsal rooms, wonderful facilities. And we worked together in a very positive, friendly, gentle and yet inspiring way. And I I loved being in the presence of John because of his aura. John Gaydon was a facilitator. He was not a jealous man, a man who wanted to be number one or had issues with people who might compete with him or had issues about he just was a facilitator he took in and made available to anyone with talent he attracted to the company and the company reflected his spirit at that time and it's had many artistic directors and it's had very you know prolifically wonderful periods and perhaps less wonderful periods but it was a great time and for me it was the forming of me as an artist um and having Geoffrey Rush there playing Autolycus in the in the Winter's Tale and the Fool in King Lear and the actors of the caliber of Geoffrey decades before Geoffrey was famous but he was already a brilliant actor you know um so it was a, a great and wonderful time for me. I don't think I've ever been quite so content, happy and encouraged as I was in those years with John Gaydon. And of course then uh, Melbourne Theatre Company under yes. Rod, Roger Hodgman's yes. artistic directorship. I did go to the Melbourne Theatre Company only for a couple of years and of course I was the replacement for Simon Phillips who had been the associate director. Right. And Simon had moved on, and I became the Simon Phillips with Roger. And I remember we do, you know, I, I did a terrific Tempest there. John Gaydon came across and played Prospero. I remember seeing M. Butterfly. M. Butterfly, which was with um, Harry M. Miller and the Melbourne Theatre Company. Yeah. The Chagrin. The Chagrin. Chagrin. Yes, which subsequently toured. Um, with the great Marcus Graham, who was very young and very cheeky and very naughty and very sexy. And a brilliant set, I remember, on that too. A, a sort of wonderful set by Dale yep. that, um, that revolved, was a huge cliff that revolved. But that actually, to be honest, that originated in Queensland, right. at the Queensland Theatre Company, right. QDC, and then it had gone to Melbourne. Um, but, you know, again, there I was at a state theatre company directing everything from Shakespeare to the smallest play. And that is a gift, you know, to an artist. And in, in those days, the associate directors were... I mean, sometimes theatre companies have six associate directors, which means you're kind of an associate of the company. 
That's not how it was in South Australia or Melbourne. There was one associate director and you were the associate of the artistic director and you were expected to direct five things a year. And do you get a, a hand in casting or is that something that yeah, the artistic no, completely, director should no, Completely. Complete right. cast everything myself, um, often with advice from the artistic director, but no, I cast everything. It's only in the opera world that you don't cast. Right. In the opera world, the opera world is totally unique because opera companies, the artistic director of an opera company will cast an opera two or three years in advance before they've chosen the director. And it has ever been thus. It is a totally different world. All the big musicals with Cameron McIntosh and later with Andrew Lloyd Webber in the West End, etc., 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 I was sitting next to Andrew Lloyd Webber casting. I was sitting next to Cameron McIntosh casting. Because on big commercial gigs, the producer has a big say in who the casting is because there's millions of dollars involved. But always I was the person casting it. So how do you ensure that you've got the right people for the job? Because, I mean, obviously if you cast a production properly, a lot of the work looks after itself to a degree. But That's if true. you make a mistake... yes. You live, to re- you live to regret it, yes. <laughs> well, casting's one of the big arts of, of directing. I mean, if you cast it right, as you say, things work out. And if you cast it wrong, it can be a disaster and you have to live with it. Um, mind you, I have fired people after they've been cast. Um, with Andrew Lloyd Webber, we actually fired the leading lady and replaced her because Andrew agreed that she wasn't cutting it. Now, that's... That's the cutthroat world of the big commercial musical. Um, but generally, you don't fire people. Um, you find a way to make it work. But castings are a, a, a very challenging process. And it forces you to be very clear about what you want the story to be and how you want the story to be told. But the thrilling thing about casting is sometimes you've made up your mind exactly the type of person you want in this role and you're waiting for them to come in the door. And then all of a sudden someone comes in the door who is nothing like what you imagined Mm. and who completely and utterly convinces you in those moments to rethink everything because they bring, they shine a light on the role in a new way. And that's happened to me, where I've suddenly cast someone thinking, my God, he or she is the complete opposite of what I imagined. Um, When we cast Jesus Christ Superstar on uh, the West End, we went to Scandinavia, we went all over Europe, we saw over 3,000 people for the role of Jesus. And I sat there with Andrew through thousands of people. And... Um, there's a video of Jesus Christ Superstar, of my, my production, which was shot at Pinewood Studios. And the guy that played Pilot, um, Frederick Johansson, who, who is wonderful in the video if you ever get to see it, he plays Pilot brilliantly. Well, we found him in Scandinavia. He was a chorus boy. And, I mean, he, was, he turned out to be this magnificent pilot, immortalised forever on that video for Universal Studios. Um, I remember when the boy who ended up playing Jesus walked into the room 
And of course, the I think the thing actors don't realise about casting, actors come to casting terrified, nervous, will they like me, won't they like me, oh my God, am I what they want, you know, da-da-da. The truth is the people sitting behind the desk are desperate to cast the show. They want you. They want you to solve their problems. They want to go home that night and go, we've done it, we've cast it. Whereas I think actors think it's all about, will they or won't they like me? They don't understand that we are desperate mm. for them. We're on their side, mm. which we're often, and often this happens to me, I'm trying to get the person into the show and they're doing their best to get themselves out of the show. Mm-hmm. By the way, they're auditioning. And I think that's totally the wrong song to have sung for this for this particular piece. You're stupid to bring that song in. And can't you, and I'm going to ask you to do it this way, and I'm going to ask, just go with me because I'm trying to find things in you to get you in. I th- if I could teach actors one thing, it is take pity on the people behind the desk when you go into an audition. It can be pretty daunting going in sometimes with oh, the, the commercial musicals when you've got up to 12 people. 12 behind people the... sitting there. Yeah. yeah. But I think, you, I think an actor has to say to themselves in the waiting room, I have no control over this decision. Yeah. I'm going to walk in and I'm going to unroll my carpet of goodies that are me, my uniqueness. I'm going to offer them what I can do to help them out. And if I'm not what they want, that's got nothing to do with my ability. That's how an actor needs to go to an audition. And that's very hard to do. Because so many times I would turn actors away, not because they weren't talented, but because the part was already cast or the leading lady was a foot taller than them. Mm. And I would want to run down the hallway and grab them and say, I think you're terrific. You are a wonderful actor. You're not going to be in this play, but it's not because you're not a wonderful actor. Because they don't get feedback. Their agent, you know, they ring their agent a week later and they just get told, no, you didn't get the job. They don't, they don't know why they didn't get the job. So it's a very, it's a, it's a tricky process. Let's go back to Les Mis. Yes. That original production in Australia. Yes. You must have seen heaps of people. But you arrive at that phenomenal cast, Philip Quast, Deborah Byrne, um, Simon Burke, Marina Pryor, that well, must have been very entertaining auditions. Well, Trevor said to the producers, I will only see 60 people because I'm busy. So the producers had to source the, I the said, most appropriate said to John Robertson candidates. and James Thane, I will only see 60 people. So we went off on and we saw nearly 3,000 people before Trevor arrived. So I had to whittle it down with James Thane and John Robertson, who were there representing Cameron. We had to whittle it down to 60 people for 30 roles. So you can imagine, I mean, it was a nightmare. And we. So this is ensemble roles as well, of course. Or yeah, every role. The entire he only wanted to see 60 people. So we went all the way around Australia. We saw thousands of people. And, of course, Philip Quast came in and we all went, there can be no other Javert. I mean, he is 
extraordinary. He is at the right point in his career to play Javert. He is incredible. He's an incredible artist um, and remains so to this day. And he was our offering for Javert. We may have had to offer two people for every role, I can't remember. Um, I know that Cameron was very interested in Normie Rowe in the beginning because Normie had been a rock star. He had the falsetto voice. He had a very similar background to Colm Wilkinson. Wilkinson, who'd played the original Valjean. And even though Normie had no theatre experience or being on a stage in the sense of acting, he had that phenomenal rock voice and was also of an age. You know, Colm Wilkinson was, was, was quite mature when he played the role of Jean Valjean. He wasn't young. It wasn't Hugh Jackman in the movie, you know. He was, he was a substantially mature person. And Normie was a mature person. You know, he was sort of in his midlife prime. And um, Cameron was very interested in that and really, really pushed Normie as an idea because it was going to be commercial and it was going to grab people's attention. And he was right. I mean, but there you have the producer stepping in saying, this guy can sing it, you'll have to teach him to act it. But he's, you know, he belongs to this country. He's an Australian legend. He's, you know, let's give it to him and and give him the skills to perform it, which we did, which Trevor did. Um, so, uh, and, and, you know, he was a magnificent Jean Valjean, later replaced by Rob Guest, who was also a, a great Jean Valjean. Um, but, yes, we whittled it down. And... I think there were two possibilities for Marius and Simon Burke ended up playing Marius and the other alternative was Peter Cousins. Who eventually played. And when Simon left, Peter went straight into the role because it had only ever been the two of them and it could always have gone either way, mm. you know. Um, it was Trevor's choice in that moment that this was compatible with that, with that, with that. But Peter then went on to play Marius for years and was, was, was wonderful, as Simon had been when he started it. So, and of course, Robin Arthur, who played Madame Thenardier, for 10 years in that role with either Peter Carroll or Bill Zappa playing Thenardier. And they'd both been, you know, shortlisted by Trevor. So it was, for me, it was a great training experience because to have to offer a great director, 60 people, is, that's tough. You have, to really, you have to really think about what you're doing because you could sit there and say, I don't like any of these 60 people, are you insane? Um, now, I had James Thane and John Robertson and, of course, Cameron came when Trevor came and these poor buggers had to turn up in front of a big panel of 12 people. And we cast it and that remarkable cast was put together. Anthony Warlow. I remember Anthony Warlow walking in and I mean I cannot I, I cannot believe there has ever been a greater enjolras than Anthony Warlow. I mean perhaps I, I haven't seen every single production of Les Mis in the world but I've never I have never seen a production of Les Mis with a better enjolras than um, Anthony Warlow. 
or a better Cosette than Marina Pryor, or a better... I mean, we had a world-class cast, we really did. Join me in the next episode of Stages for part two of our conversation with director Gail Edwards. In part two, we'll learn about her extensive international career and the challenges presented to an artist as they navigate a precarious industry. I'm Peter Ayers, and you've been listening to Stages.